Good morning. I realize many of you are in mourning today. We'll take a moment of silence for the USC loss. All right, we're over that. Now, let's get on to the business of the day. Do we have some junior hires in the house right here? Do I have high schoolers in the house? Where are the junior hires? Junior high? Where are the high schoolers? Where are the college students? Where are those who are mature but think they're young? Raise your hands. That's all of us. Hey, it's going to be a good day. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen? Amen. Hey, we're going to start a study in the book of Colossians. Get your Bible open. Get these notes ready to take notes. And we're going to talk about the most Christological book in the entire New Testament. You say, Christological? Don't say that fast because I'll spray it all over these kids. Christ is number one. Now you say, no, you know, I'm in a football game. That's when you put your finger up there, we're number one. Or if you're from Texas, I guess you're number two. I don't know what that's all about. But the bottom line is in this book, Jesus Christ is number one. He is preeminent. We will look at that. And I want to begin a tradition today. I want to read the text. You know, it says in the scriptures that we should t pay attention to the public reading of the scriptures. And oftentimes, we just kind of blow through that in our commentary. I remember when I was in sermon prep at Talbot Seminary with Howard Yim, who was my sermon prep professor, and somebody had their Bible laying on the floor, and he picked it up and he said, why would you place your Bible on the floor? This is life-giving. This is the Word of God. And as I began to think about that, I thought about the times when I would preach, how often I would just read the text quickly and we would move on. But I'd like to start a new tradition as we study this book, that we would stand together and in honor of God's Word, I want to read it slowly to us. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Now, we have already a conflict in the pews. There are NIV Bibles in the pew, and I'm going to read to you from the New American Standard. Let there be no murmurings or disputings, all right? <laughs> Please stand with me. In honor of God's Word, let's look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as is in all the world, also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed of us in your love in the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we ask that your words would come alive to us today. Do not let the messenger confuse the message. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This morning, we're going to take a look at the book. You may be seated. We're going to take a look at this book together. He's exhorting their, the readers to set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above. That's our theme for the book of Colossians. How often do we come to church not having our minds right? not thinking about things above. Now, we've talked about those things that distract, so I won't add to that list, but let's focus today on our text. So get your outlines out. First of all, let's look at the panorama of the view. Now, we're going to look at the book of Colossians in the big way. And for those of you who are not oriented towards learning or teaching, some of you are auditory learners, then just listen. Some of you are better at taking notes, then take some notes. Some of you are saying, I don't like these outlines. There's just too much. It's overwhelming. So for you, you need to have a journal. 
This is like my best of. And so when I'm sitting and then I get done taking notes, I take one or two thoughts and I write them down. And I just write them in this journal. And it's just like uh, if I ever have to do a devotional kind of on the spur, these are some of the best stuff that I've heard from other people. And so however you can get God's word into your heart, into your head today, you do it. Now, let's look at the overview of the text, and I think the PowerPoint should be following along with us. Let's look at the author, the date, and the context. Now, it's written 60 to 62 AD. That means nothing other than it's a long, long time ago, and it's during the end of his first house arrest in Rome. And so if you've studied Philippians, which you did a few months ago, you know that Paul was imprisoned in Rome for quite a while. Now, it's considered one of these prison epistles, along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. So Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon are these prison epistles. Now, somebody is with him. Look in your text here. Who's along with Paul in this? It's who else? Timothy. Now, that doesn't mean he's the co-writer. He just means he's with him. Now, let me give you some unique distinctives, all right? And for those of you, we're going to get a bit of the big overview, and then we'll come back to verse 1 here in a second. Now, there's some distinctives. It's only one of two places that Paul wrote to but never visited. Isn't that amazing? He, he never visited Colossae. And the other one you would have thought he would have visited was, the, uh, was uh, whether it was Rome. He didn't visit the believers in Rome because he was in prison in Rome, all right? And he never really personally visited them. It's, it's geographically close to Ephesus, which is about 100 miles to the east. Now, I think there's going to be a picture up there. Let's look at that. So if you see this, kind of, there's Colossae. You see Laodicea. You see Ephesus, which is on the coast. It's kind of like, would you like to live in Newport Beach or Victorville? <laughs> you know, kind of that idea there. Uh, and that's where he wrote. And if anybody had kind of a, a self-image problem, it might have been the Colossian church. All right? They were small, clearly the smallest group of believers he's talked to. Even the Thessalonians, who only spent three weeks, had more people in their church. So it was kind of a small ministry way in the interior there, and we think that probably they shared this letter with those guys in Laodicea, which we visit again if you study Revelation, to the seven churches. So that's where it is. There's a tie to Philemon, and we'll tell you why in a moment. In fact, there are six names, including Timothy, that are in both of those two books. Now, here's something that's interesting. As you look at Colossians, why do you need the book of Colossians and the book of, of Ephesians? Because they're very, very similar books. In fact, there's 210 verses. This is for you math people. 78 of those are really similar phrases to the books uh, of Ephesians. And so I put a little chart there in your notes. And you can see there, though, that there are very different emphasis in the book of Ephesians versus the book of Colossians. Now, just for a moment before these guys' eyes just, you know, just whoa, and they just, they gloss over. I want you to look at that chart. So all you guys get your charts open, and look at the differences between Ephesians and Colossians. The emphasis of Ephesians is the church is the body of Christ. In Colossians, it's the head of the body. Christ is the head. The style of Ephesians is very flowing. In fact, the, 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 the language in the Greek is very flowing, but it's kind of abstract in general. Where Colossians is tense, it's abrupt, it's specific, it's concrete. It's like me. She's like Ephesians. I'm like Colossians. In fact, you can just look in your marriage. Who are you married to? You're, you're, uh, from Ephesians or Colossians, your style. Uh, one is more reflective. One's more discussion-oriented. One is calm. Colossians is a little argumentative, all right? This is the one where you want to kind of debate. This is a good book to debate because he's going to deal with some three big issues I'll show you in a second. Ephesians is large and known. Colossians was a small, no-time kind of little podunk place in the middle of nowhere. Now, if you had to pick, and this is where you get to vote, all right? If you had to pick the key verse in the verse of, uh, of, of Colossians, I guess we might pick chapter 3, verse 11, right? Let's look at it. I, I think there are several that we can choose from, but look at Colossians 3, verse 11. It says, Christ is in all and in all. At the end of verse 11, neither Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Uh, my second, and I, I couldn't pick one, so you, you can have a number of them. Look, go at Colossians 1.27, or is this the key verse? To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, this is the, which is in Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is it Christ in you? Is that the key verse? Or maybe it's Colossians 1.18. Colossians 1.18. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. You ever heard that phrase, is Jesus number one in your life? That's where it comes from, right here, Colossians 1.18. And I want you to be thinking about it right now. If something is number one in your life, what does that really mean? If it's number one, if it's the most important thing to you, I want you to be able to reflect, even as I'm preaching, what would that look like in my life? What would that actually mean? You see... In chapter 2, verse 9, he is God. In chapter 1, verse 16, he is creator. In chapter 1, verses 20, and chapter 2, verse 13, he is the savior. In chapter 1, verse 18, he's the head of the church. Christ is all of those things. So you'll have to pick your own key verse. I've given you three to choose from. Now, Colossians in the New Testament is one of those books that it doesn't talk about everything that, that the rest of the New Testament talks about. It's very, very focused. But in context, Jesus Christ are these things. Now, we're going to talk about several big words, and I'm not going to explain them. I'm just going to let you take your time. Dads, if you are leading your family in a quiet time or a family devotion, I'd go back to right here, circle this section, and say, explain to your kids what each of these words mean. But Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, we are the following. If he is number one, if he's first, what does that really mean? First of all, that means you're justified, Romans 3.24. Romans 3.24, you're justified just as if I'd never sinned. Number two, you're enriched, 1 Corinthians 1.5. Your life is different if Jesus Christ is number one in your life. You are comforted, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. You're comforted. Number four, you are free, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 5.13 says, even though you're free, don't use it for your own flesh, though. Number five, you're made alive, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Number six, in Christ Jesus, we are rejoicing, Philippians 4.4. 4. And then, according to Colossians, we are reconciled and established, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, and verses 2 through 6. Now, those of you who can't write really fast, this is cool because I've already worked it out with Ron. I'm going to give you my notes. All these notes, everything I do say and don't say, we're going to start posting all these notes, the study notes, uh, on, on the website. So if you're not a writer, that's all right. Just listen. Now, some of you say, how would you outline the text? Well, I can't outline any better than Norm Geisler, and I love the way he, if we were just going to do a four-part series, which, by the way, we're not, will be 14 weeks in the book of Colossians. You go, 14 weeks? What are you going to talk about? Oh, believe me, I can find things to talk about. But if we only took four weeks and we kind of look at it, there might be this big, broad, general categories. First of all, doctrinal, deeper in the life of Christ in, in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, it's polemical, this higher life in Christ. Then it's spiritual. By the way, you can explain to the generators what polemical means or we'll look it up later. Thirdly, spiritual, the inner life in Christ in chapter 3, and then the practical, the outer life in Christ going on into chapter 14. That's if we were to outline the book in just four weeks. Now, the reason I'm excited about this, there are several very important topics. We're going to get to Colossians chapter 3 in a few weeks, and that'll be matched up with Ephesians what? Five. Same verses, all those of you who didn't want to talk about love and submission and respect and marriage and parents and kids, we're going to do a little mini family series right in the middle of the study of Colossians. But you might ask yourself as we're starting the study, why are we studying this book? Why study the book of Colossians? I think there are three reasons, and the three reasons why Paul wrote this book are the same three reasons why it's important for our church today, because I think we're experiencing some of the same things the believers in Colossae did. Number one, he wrote it to encourage the church. He wrote it 
to encourage the church. He wants this little tiny congregation that he'd never met face to face, but he was their spiritual grandfather through Epaphroditus, who I'll explain that in just a little bit. So he wanted to encourage the church. Everybody do this. Take a big, deep breath. Let it out. Take another one. Let it out. When I came to our church a month ago, it was tense. And I can tell you, God is doing something very cool right now. We can't explain it. We don't have to analyze it. We don't have to overthink it. But I believe that God is doing something right here, right now, in this place. And you don't have to be uptight. You don't have to be all worried. Guess what? Jesus is still on the throne. And some of you have been weary. You've been laboring, and there's nothing wrong with that labor. You've been hanging on. You've been holding on. And today, we're going to take just a deep breath to say, hey, what would, it like, what would it look like in our lives if our little church, maybe we sometimes think it's kind of small and insignificant, but if Jesus Christ was preeminent, what would that look like? Think about that. At the end of our service today, I've got a stack of books here. And you're going to get a chance to make a decision to say whether or not Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. And maybe he's been the Lord of your life for a long time. But maybe some things have crept into your life, just like what I'm going to talk about, things that have crept into the life of the Colossian church. And maybe it's been a long time since you took that cup of coffee with your journal in the quietness of the night or the early morning. <sighs> and took that deep breath and said, Lord Jesus, what do I need to hear from you today? So this is how cool things are. I hadn't planned this, but I was in Mexico this week. I do ministry in Mexico three days a month where I'm down in Mexico doing stuff with an organization called Yugo. And we're in the warehouse, and there's always stuff coming and going to our outreach centers, and there was these boxes of books, and it had free on them. And that is a good sign for a guy like me. I got 5,000 books. I like free books. And I got a couple, I picked up a couple of classics. The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer and Intimacy with the Almighty by Chuck Swindoll. And today, after, as, you, as we pray and we conclude, some of you are going to come and you're just going to kneel here. Not because there's sin in your life. Not because you're trying to make a show of it. You're just going to say, hey, I want to recommit that Jesus Christ is one, the only one, the preeminent one. And if you do, then I want you to slide back over here and just take one of those books, whichever one you want. And so maybe only the first 40 who come nail, I don't know, we'll get one, I don't know. And this market in the day, this is the day that I reaffirmed that Jesus was number one. Now there's only one small catch. If you take the book, you got to read it, and then by December, you got to email me and say, this is what Jesus taught me through this book, and you got to email me back, and sometime at the end of the series, I'm going to read little excerpts of your emails of what Jesus Christ means to you. Fair enough? So I'm telling you now, because some of you are like very analytical. Let's see, now do I move now? Do I kneel? Do I stand? Do I pray? Just come, kneel, pray, grab the book, all right? There you go. So I think he wrote it to encourage the church. Secondly, he wanted to prevent doctrinal error. Doctrinal error. He's kind of in the prevention mode. He wants to correct this error that was beginning to be introduced to the, the church. Now remember, Christ died in about 30 to 34 AD, you know, depending on what you, the chronology. And this is written in the 60s. So 30 years after the death of Christ, there's already heresy beginning to be introduced into the church. And the problem is there's this eclectic mixture of kind of Jewish legalism and Greek mysticism. Jewish legalism, Greek mysticism. And it, and they, it may have been what some people think is an early form of Gnosticism. 
And that, that's very simply said is that Gnostics believe that all matter, physical things were evil, but the spirit was really the only thing that was good. So if you were a Gnostic, then you didn't believe in the humanity of Jesus Christ. You only wanted to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. And so all kinds of false doctrines could have sprung up. In particular, there were three in the Colossian church that, that, that Paul's going to address. One was this worship of angels. They worshiped angels. They thought these angelic beings could help them attain salvation, that somehow if you worshiped angels, you'd get to heaven. And that Jesus was something lower than an angel. He, that where, where was he with God? Secondly, they, they had this false teaching uh, involving asceticism. Now, if I could have found it, we would have just had a bed of nails with someone laying on it. And, you know, this kind of, I'm going to deny myself, and there's this emphasis on this self-denial, these ceremonial laws, very legalistic. Now, think about this. Many of the believers came from the Jewish faith where there was a lot of rules and rituals, so it would be understandable that maybe legalism was creeping in because of their Jewish background. And so apparently only those who had the full knowledge, the special knowledge, these, that only taught by these special false teachers could actually experience spiritual maturity. Paul says, uh-uh, uh-uh. You don't need to follow that. And then thirdly, paganism, this pagan culture where the church existed. And remember, there was all kinds of gods in the, you know, there was Artemis, there was uh, Demeter, there's Helios, there's Serapis and Isis and all these Colossian believers, no doubt, had this pull of their, ba their previous lifestyle was strong, and, and the church was in danger of relapsing. Now think about it in our, in our context. Maybe it's not angels, asceticism, and paganism, but there are things that pull us away from keeping the main thing the main thing. How often... Do you go about your day with no conscious thought that Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, resides in you? You just get caught up in the business of the day and you just go do, 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 and all this stuff. Actually, that was too many do's and do's because then we get doo doo. Anyway, um, sorry guys. But we just busy working, working, working. And we don't even take the time to say, hey, Jesus, what is it that you have for me today? Some of you know that when I go out to lunch in a place where I go regularly and I can reconnect with a waitress or a waiter, I like to ask this question. Hey, I'm going to pray for my food today. Is there anything I can pray for you about? So the reason I go to Angel Cafe is I'm just hoping to get the same waiter like twice. So far, three different waiters, I've met the owner. But you know, there are times where people say, ah, whatever, but there will be a time. If you just practice that and ask someone, you may be shocked at the answer they'll give you. And so, I don't know what might be creeping into our church, but I would suggest that it might be things like this. That doing good stuff for God is somehow making me find favor with God. That's an error. God's more in concerned about what's going on internally, not just what you're producing externally. There's just one. As I get to know us better, we'll talk more about where, where could we kind of veer off the course. We don't want to do that. And then the third thing, not only was he encouraging the church, preventing the doc doctrinal error, but declaring the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus Christ is the sole sufficient reason for existence. Now, let me explain something. Jesus is both God and man. True? He's God and man. If you look at the first four centuries in the New Testament church, the four major heresies, which I'm not going to get to, either overemphasize the deity of Christ to the neglecting of the humanity of Christ or overemphasize the humanity of Christ to the de-emphasis of the deity of Christ. And so some were, and there in this church, were denying the deity of Christ. Junior hires. what does the deity of Christ mean? It means that Jesus is what? It's a three-letter word beginning with G. God, excellent. Give me some knuckle. Stand right up here. Give me some knuckle right now. God, all right? Jesus is God. That's the deity of Christ. And you can go to chapter 2, verse 9. 
In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So in the same verse, he's also talking about the humanity of Christ. Now, he's also man, verse, chapter 1, verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. It's the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, and ultimately the sufficiency of Christ. Now, now we're ready to get to verse 1. So it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. We're looking at Paul's credentials. This, he's an apostle. That's a pretty big deal, all right? He has authority. And he's saying it's sent to the saints, the, the set-apart ones. And if you look at, at chapter 1, look at the first part of verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren. Apparently some people had left. Now, we've had some people who have left our church, but that doesn't mean that they're in doctrinal error or they're, they're, they're heretics. But there were some people who had defected. That's very differently. That's a different issue. So if you know someone in our body who has left the faith, who's defected for that reason, I'd love to make a little pastoral visit with them. Some of our folks who have left have left for a variety of other reasons. But he's saying to the faithful brethren, the ones who are hanging in there. Now he makes a commendation in verses 2 through 5. And this is where if you think about a report card, what is he thankful and praying them for? Look Verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now look at verse 4 and 5, and I want you to circle three words. Because it's the same three words you get in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. Now let's see if they're in there. Since we heard of your, what? Faith in Christ Jesus, circle faith, and the, what? Love, which you have for all the saints, because of, verse 5, the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, hope, love. In this, uh, in this particular, it's faith, love, hope. So Paul is thankful for three things. Their faith toward the Lord. Their faith towards the Lord. And that, the, the Greek idea of this, of this, this word of faith, it, it has this meaning to obey. So ultimately, faith is about obedience. It's not just about knowing that Jesus is Lord, all right? It's, it's obedience. On the back of your notes, just turn there for a second. As I, I put a thing here called table talk. So you have a chance to revisit this as you have your quiet time this week. I'd like all of you to begin to think about question six. If your character was evaluated by your faith, your love, and your hope, what would the report card look like? You give yourself a grade today. How's my faith doing? A, B, C, flunking? Faith toward the Lord. Secondly, love toward each other and the love that you have for all the saints. One is describing the vertical relationship. This is describing your horizontal relationships with other people. They'll know we are Christians by our love. So let's just pause here. Oh boy, some of you are already getting nervous. He's gotten away from the pulpit. That means he's not preaching. He's now into the meddling. Yeah, that's where we're headed. <laughs> Pretty much. Some of you have a hard time loving other people in this church. You're not the best of friends. In fact, some of you go down a different aisle at the supermarket if you see somebody coming. Now you say, that's not people from our church, it's people who have left our church. Ooh, ouch. Or some of you are upset because some of the people who left the church are your best friends and you want to blame it on somebody in this church for their departure. Okay, let's take a deep breath one more time and exhale. It's hard, isn't it? Some of these former pastors were your really good friends. Some of these people who spent years here are no longer here. And you're saying, Lord, how do I forgive? How do I make sense of this? How do I love? Well, we're going to explore that together. There is no simple three-step process. I just got to tell you, it, it isn't that easy. If forgiveness was always that easy, we would never wrestle with it.
We'd never struggle with it. But maybe there's somebody in the church here that you've got to love, and it's hard to love them. And maybe, just maybe, over time, God's going to melt that refrigerator, that frozen heart of yours that's walled off this person because of this event. And you've got to let go of it. You've got to let go of it. I, um, I get the privilege of having pastor chats. I want to c- encourage you. A pastor chat does not mean that you are messed up. All right? just, I want to clarify. I'm not going to talk to the pastor. That means I'm messed up. No, it means that you would like to talk, and you know your pastor is an extrovert, and if you don't come and see him, he will sit lonely in his office, twiddling his thumbs, wishing that there was somebody who cared enough to bring another plate of chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> By the way, I did leave him in the office for two days, offered them to everybody, and then they're gone. All right, so. Who, by the way, there was a junior hire who did that. Who is that junior hire? You are the person? You are awesome. You get to sit in the front row next week. All right. So faith, love, and then what's the third thing? Hope for the, toward the future. They're looking forward to the joys of heaven. How many of you have some physical pain in your life right now? Just raise your hand. I don't need to know what it is. But um, for me right now, the reminder that this earth is not my home is defined by how this right knee feels after racquetball. And, and um, you know, I played a lot of sports in life, and I never got injured until uh, two years ago, and it had nothing to do with sports. I was carrying a book of books for, like this down my stairwell from my upstairs library to my down one, and I thought, you know, it's walking, walking, walking. I thought I was at this bottom step, but I was on this step, and stepped over it. And the books went this way, the knee went that way, and the body went that way. And just when you're my size, <clears throat> there's reasons why they linemen help each other up off the ground in football. And it hurt. And so I've been kind of gimping around for a couple years. That knee, every time it aches, reminds me that, that this earth is not my home. Any of you taking care of an aging parent... And they know the Lord, this earth is not their home. And sometimes we get all upset about what God isn't going to do to heal someone or do this something or what something. But our hope, friends, is not in this present earth. Our hope isn't in who wins the election in November. Our hope isn't whether or not your kid gets the right teacher at the right school in the right school district for this year. Our hope isn't in whether you do well in your fantasy football league this year. Our, oh, that's sacred ground for some of you, I, I realize. You see, we put our hope in all kinds of other things. By the way, our hope isn't in the numbers of people who come to this church or in the size of the offerings. The only thing I want to place my hope in ultimately is that Jesus Christ is so evident in my life that when people come in contact with me, they want to know more about Jesus. They don't need to know more about me, but they want to know more about Jesus. You've got to pray for something. Tomorrow, on my day off, I'm, I've got an evangelistic golf opportunity. <laughs> there is a God in heaven. I love it. One of your parishioners said, you're a golfer? Let's go. I've got some non-Christian friends that are coming. Now, one of them may be, one may not. We'll find out. But the bottom line is, I'm going to use that opportunity to build a bridge to someone I don't know tomorrow. And then the parishioner who goes here will just keep a secret how badly I play, and we'll just leave it there on the course. But the bottom line, my hope isn't in my golf game. My hope is that Jesus Christ is someday coming back. He's returning in all of his glory. And someday I will reside as a citizen in heaven. And every day I live, every day I breathe, I want to help more people know Jesus so we can depopulate hell and populate heaven. It's a simple little formula. 
And when we're focused about our stuff and what's good for us and what about this and I'm upset about that and how come the elders didn't think about this or whatever you might have in your head, your hope isn't here. Your hope is in heaven. So Paul's confirmation to them in verses 5 and 6 is that the gospel is truth to you. See that? Because of the hope laid up in heaven, which is previously heard in the word of God, the gospel which has come to you, verse 6, come to you. The truth of the gospel. He reminds them this truth. Of, he reminds them. He doesn't reprimand him, by the way. He doesn't, you know, push their buttons. The gospel is the truth. And then the gospel, verse 6, is going from you. Going from you. And it does among you since the day you heard and understand the grace of God and truth. The whole world is bearing fruit and it's increasing. So the gospel was impacting the world even back then. The gospel is impacted by the Dream Center where our, our students went yesterday, making a difference in L.A. The grace of God is evident in these believers. Now, there's a difference in understanding and hearing grace and living grace. Now, this is just my observation. I'm so glad that a girl Bible fellowship doesn't have the word grace in its title. Because you ever notice this? Have you ever known how many churches that have the word grace in their name are not so much? They just don't seem to be as graceful as their name says. Let's, let's live it. If, 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 if grace should be one of the defining characteristics of a Christ follower, then let's extend it. Who do we need to extend grace to? Maybe you need to extend grace to your neighbor who is cranky and irritable and calls the police on you every time you have a gathering at your house or if the music is turned too loud or if you have a party in your backyard. Maybe grace needs to be extended to your boss who doesn't care that you have a life. He just wants more from you. Or maybe grace needs to be extended to a believer, to a non-believer, and unfortunately that's in your own marriage. And you're wanting this spouse to live up to this standard, but they don't yet know Christ. If you are a solo parent here today, would you do me a favor and just email me this week and say, hey, I'm, I'm, my spouse doesn't know the Lord, but I come every week by myself. I, I would just like to know who you are, just because I, I have a special place in my heart for those of you who come as single moms, single dads, grandmas and grandpas, because maybe it's not because you're widowed, it's because you have an unbelieving spouse that just doesn't join you. And if ever you want to just be prayed for, man, one of the things as we stand over, let's just pray for that. So let's show that grace. Well, who is Paul's companion he did this work with? Just as you learned it from Epaphras, what a name, Epaphras. What kind of nicknames can we get from Epaphras, guys? Pappy, what? Pappy, Epep, yo, you know. I, I don't know, but I, I think parents didn't like him. I don't know. Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, faithful minister. What's his reputation? Well, here's an interesting study. If you study the book of Acts, maybe Epaphras, Paul maybe even led him to Christ. I'll let you decide that, Acts chapter 19, verse 10. Some think he might be Epaphroditus, which is mentioned later. But the bottom line is Epaphras is some 1,000 to 1,300 miles away. And he's the one who's actually brought the word of these concerns all the way from Colossae, all the way to Rome. And he's gone to Paul to tell him, hey, there's problems here in River City. So this is the guy that Paul is commending. And he says he's such a valued teammate because he's a fellow servant which, by the way, it's the only time and only place where Paul identifies a co-worker as a slave. He's the only time in the whole New Testament. And he's a faithful minister. He's sacrificing. In fact, he was the one who was pastoring the church while Paul's in prison in Rome. This is Epaphras. So that's his reputation. His report was that their love prompted by the Holy Spirit was evident. And the gospel was spreading. You see that. Every time we teach the text, there's a lot of content here today, but I want to land the plane. So if we took three takeaways today, now for those who haven't been taking notes, but these are the times where you want to put in your, this is journal time, all right? So get it out here. Number one, I've alluded to the first one. 
Our size doesn't determine our significance. If we look at the principles of, of Colossians, our size doesn't determine our significance. Guess what, ABF? There are no small places in God's kingdom. There are no small places. In fact, as we study this book, clearly some kind of say that Colossae was by far the least important church that Paul ever addressed. Some of you feel a little unimportant today, maybe as a church, maybe as a person. And even though there are some places that seem small and insignificant in God's kingdom, they have a purpose. This includes a little town called Agura Hills. Just as Colossae was no Rome and Agura Hills is no L.A., God has a plan for us. He is not done with us. In fact, God's going to use our church. And I don't know exactly how, but there's something that's brewing here among us. And let's pray. What does God want to do in the succeeding months ahead? Because sometime in the future, you're going to get your permanent pastor. But we don't have to wait for the permanent pastor to get here. Let's get busy. Let's get busy now for what God wants to use and do through us. What's going to be our unique role in this community? Now, it's pretty cool. God even uses mistakes in emails for his purpose. Apparently, at Agura Bible Fellowship, there is John, J-O-N, at Agura Bible. There's also John, J-O-H-N, at Agura Bible. John hit it out of the park last year at Calabasas High School for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, or Westlake High School. I don't remember which one. Okay, I didn't even know who this lady was. So he said, John, love it for you to come back. Do I, I'm, I'm, do I know her? I haven't been to Westlake High School. So I said, sure, I will. <laughs> Just snake that thing from John. No, I put, and I, cop, I copied John on it. And I said, I think you want John, our youth pastor. I'm just John, the, the, the interim pastor. And she took this right note. She says, well, I want you too. <laughs> so I'm going, he's going. We're both going. God uses mistakes that someone makes because it doesn't matter the size in the kingdom. He's going to use us. Number two, our reputation is a reflection of our character. Our reputation is a reflection of our character. Faith, hope, and love is a great measuring stick for your life. So if you go back to the text, is my faith being expressed? Is it? Not just in my head, but my heart. See, some of you who are teachers and analytical, you're going, oh, this was such a good message. I got a new chart. <laughs> so excited. Others are going, oh, uh, yeah, do I look at it this way? Whatever, right? See, it's not just about your head. What is God also doing in your heart with your faith? Is my love evident? Here's another one. Not just theoretically, but practically. Would you pray for me today? I'm doing another wedding. I do a lot of weddings. The couple I'm marrying today do not know the Lord. They're not Buddhist. They're not anything. They're irreligious. And guess what? I'm using 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. I'm going to talk about how God completes their love in front of all these non-Christian people at the Ramsey Club at 5 o'clock today. Is your love evident I sat with all the groomsmen at the rehearsal luncheon yesterday, just building a bridge with them to talk with them. I may only have one shot, but I'm going to take it. So, is my faith expressed, not in just my head and my heart? Is my love evident, not just theoretical, but practical? Is my hope eternal, not just temporary, but secure? Is my hope eternal? That's the report card today. Where's your faith? Where's your love? Where's your hope? And then lastly, Jesus needs to be preeminent, not just present in your life. Jesus needs to be preeminent, number one, in our lives. Now, I would like to claim this for myself, but I can't. I, I got to read another scholar. He said it this way. He said, we live in a day when religious toleration is interpreted to mean one religion is just as good as another. 
Some people try to take the best from various religious systems and manufacture their own private religion. I see this all the time, this kind of mixture of New Age and postmodernism. And, oh, yeah, I'm not a Christian, but I'm spiritual. Have you ever heard that? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm spiritual. What does that mean? I mean, I've met so many CEO Christians. You know who CEO Christians are? Christa, Christmas and Easter only CEO. You know, uh, but I'm spiritual. I'm deeply spiritual. I'm living with my girlfriend, but I'm deeply spiritual. I'm cheating on my income tax, but I believe that God would say it's okay because the government's corrupt or, you know, whatever excuse. You see, to many people, Jesus Christ is only one of several great religious leaders or teachers. And this is what they would say about him. He may be prominent, but he's definitely not preeminent. Students, I don't care what teacher tells you that Jesus Christ is one of a lot of good options. He's not just an option. College students, ever been in a world religions class? Anybody remember that? Christianity is just one of many. Just kind of pick and choose what you want. You see, Jesus is calling you out today. He needs to be preeminent. Not just present, preeminent. And whether it's Eastern religion or postmodernism, there's philosophies creeping into our church that if we're not careful, Jesus becomes just a thought on Sunday, not a life to live for every day. You see, they're not denying Christ, but they're dethroning him. Catch that? We don't, we don't have to deny Christ. We just dethrone him by saying, hey, it's okay. Jesus is my homeboy. He'll forgive me. Yo, yo. Really? I don't think Jesus is your homeboy. I think Jesus Christ is the Lord. I think we bow before him. We honor him. We lift him up. And we put him on the throne. We say, uncle. I give. I've been trying to do it on my own. Band's going to come as I wrap up, and they're going to start playing. And this is go time. This is decision time. Now, I know some of you are, okay, I'm going to just meddle just one last time. Why is it that we make a big deal whether someone comes forward or doesn't come forward? I don't care whether you come forward, but if the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart, don't be embarrassed by that. Nobody thinks you're weak. In fact, sometimes we as leaders need to say, you know what, Jesus is the Lord of my life and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm just going to, I'm going to come, I'm going to kneel in front of here and I'm just going to use this time of worship to thank him for what he's done in my life. That should not be some unusual event. And when our elders come and they're just lining the sides of the wall, which I'm going to ask them to do just to kind of come up and just stand around or they can kneel and when they're done kneeling, you can talk to them. It should not be an unusual event that we pray for one another, for anything. There was a really fun couple that I met last week. And I don't know if they're here, and I won't point them out. But long after service, they were sitting over here just talking. And I said, hey, because they were a little older. They were like 20-something. I said, are you guys newlyweds? And they go, yeah, we've been married just well. I went, cool, because I see you are intently engaged in conversation. Would it be that Jesus was like to us like a newlywed relationship where we're intently focused on talking to him? And so when something is a priority, go ahead and start playing, guys. As, as something is a priority, what does that really look like? I've been asking myself that. If Jesus really is a priority in my life, because it's easy just to get up here and preach. But if he's a priority in my life, here's the things that I'm thinking about, that I'm journaling about. If he's priority, then I make time for him. I schedule time with him. Um, I say no to things that take me away from him. Right now, things that take me away from him are related to a little cylindrical ball called a football. And I've got to be careful because that can just overwhelm um, I look forward to it. I look forward to time with him. I defer to him. 
most importantly, I slow down long enough to think about him. And so, though we're small, we're not insignificant as a church because Jesus Christ is preeminent. And may it be true of our church that your faith and your hope and your love are extending across the valley here. And people are asking, how did Jesus change your life? And most importantly, what is he doing today that's making a difference? So we're going to worship and we're going to pray. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, as we pray right now and we worship you, I'm going to ask that dozens come forward and just kneel again, maybe just stating the obvious that, Lord, I want you to be preeminent. I don't want people to come just for show. I don't want people to feel pressured. I don't want it to be manipulative. I don't want to be guilt tripped. But if in particular day someone was moved by you to say, hey, once again, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life, then would they come? And then, Lord, some have just been busy, and they got to confess that. I've been so busy, I haven't taken much time for you. And they're going to come, and they're going to kneel, and they're going to confess. And then, Lord, some are just saying, ah, oh, I need to reconnect. So they're going to come, and they're going to thank you, and they're going to grab that book. Oh, Lord, may you be preeminent, not just present in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come as God leads you during this song. Kneel, pray, do whatever. Elders will be here if you want to pray with them. Grab a book. We're going to worship God.